You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. This week, we bring you part two of our conversation with Sujit Raman, Chief Legal Officer at TRM Labs and former Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Last week, Sujit walked us through a high-level view of how cryptocurrencies work, how they're transferred and secured, as well as their vulnerabilities. In today's episode, he'll dive into all things North Korea, how the DPRK has stolen and siphoned crypto assets over the years, and what legal parameters are in place to catch these crimes before they happen. As always, thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. North Korea has a documented role in seizing crypto assets. And I know you've worked in this area at TRM Labs. You've done a lot of work and we're going to hyperlink some of the posts that you have in this area. But let's at least talk about those for a minute. Talk about sort of generally North Korea's history at this point in seizing crypto assets. Sure. And, you know, at least it's, it's really less about seizing assets than it is about hacking into and essentially stealing funds from crypto related entities. And so at TRM, we estimate that nearly $3 billion worth of crypto has been lost to Pyongyang-related threat actors since 2017. So just in the last five or six or seven years, I guess. I'm sorry, how many billion? $3 billion. And that's what we know about. uh, That's what we know about. I should be clear, though, that $3 billion has been extracted. Now, it isn't necessarily the case that all $3 billion has gone into the possession of the North Korean government. The North Koreans are actually very technically savvy. And their cyber heist program has been in place, I'd say, since around 2009, 2010. And I think a lot of folks are probably surprised to know that, you know, for a country as famished as it is in so many different ways, North Korea is actually a highly, highly sophisticated cyber actor. And there are different reasons for that. You know, even if you're a small country, but you're apportioning a significant percentage of your GDP to training up a cyber army, those guys are going to be pretty good. (laughs) You know, and and so I think for a lot of folks, that's actually quite surprising. But the North Koreans are very savvy, very sophisticated. And they've been doing this for quite some time, not just cyber. You know, you remember the Sony Pictures hack. There was the Bank of Bangladesh heist back in 2016. There was the water. Why, why don't you expand on that? People may have forgotten that. And that was so significant. And I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't know about Bangladesh. Yeah. So the Bank of Bangladesh is a really fascinating attempted crime. The North Korean government essentially targeted the account that the Central Bank of Bangladesh had in New York and essentially tried to siphon nearly a billion dollars by essentially putting forth like fake invoices or fake requests for money. And I guess the compliance department, you know, at the Bank of Bangladesh wasn't particularly strong. And so these folks essentially signed off on these kind of fraudulent requests for money. And the only reason that that heist didn't take place for the full billion dollars, which is what was what was ultimately requested, there was a typo in one of the requests. And that actually triggered kind of a red flag. This was over a holiday weekend, as I recall. And so there weren't a lot of people in the office. And so... At the end of the day, around $100 million did go into the possession of the North Korean government, from, from what we can tell. But the balance of it did not, because again, it was it happened to get caught on time. But this was just a brazen attempt by the North Korean government to just siphon a billion dollars away from Bangladesh. <laughs> you know, it's shocking. And, you know, when, when I was in the U.S. government, we ultimately actually brought charges in that case and identified an individual, a particular North Korean. 
So this cyber heist program has been around for over a decade. But I think, you know, being very savvy as they are, the North Koreans realized that there are hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars, sitting in this kind of crypto world that can be siphoned away. And as you mentioned earlier, Elisa, these transactions are irreversible, right? That's the one thing about crypto that is perhaps different than like a bank wire, which can, at least in theory, be reversed, or you can, you know, because of that pause and settlement, you can try to stop a transaction in the traditional system. When it comes to crypto, it's, it's cryptographically sealed. It's encoded. So once you hit send on the transaction, it is final. You know, again, that comes with upsides, right? But it also comes with downsides. And the North Koreans have leveraged that finality of settlement to essentially siphon funds away, hack into either exchanges or they steal private keys, get access to people's funds, and then just transfer the money out into wallets that they control that are outside the jurisdiction of the United States or its allies, and then try to convert that money into fiat. So as I said, our analysis at TRM uh, suggests that nearly $3 billion of crypto has been siphoned out in that way. Now, again, uh, much of that money is still sitting parked in various accounts. They haven't made attempts yet to try to turn that into cash. Some of that money, it's very interesting because the North Koreans are kind of loud. In other words, unlike sort of ordinary hackers who might sometimes be worried about being identified because they want to travel around the world. and they, they don't want to be indicted so that one day they might get picked up in Greece or you know, Spain or some third country. These North Korean actors are not going anywhere. They're going to be in North Korea. So they're actually willing to be a little louder with their methods. And they're willing to actually give up some of the proceeds if they can move the money out in time. So if they steal $100 million, they might be willing to write off 20, 30 million just as part of the process of moving these funds from point A to point B to point C to point D all the way across. When I say nearly $3 billion, I mean, that's a massive amount of money and it's a national security issue. And I think, you know, the government has appropriately recognized that. But I don't want to suggest that every penny is now sitting in the coffers of Kim Jong-un because that, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be accurate either. But we don't know why they're engaging in this exercise if they're not using the money. I mean, I think we're not predictors of whether this is a rehearsal for something that we haven't anticipated yet. The other thing I wanted to switch to, though, is sort of this is a vulnerable system, as we discussed. And I'm sure that is why businesses are spending money, as they probably should, on these analyses that are available through companies like TRM. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for a minute about sort of our sanctions regime, which has given us quite a bit of girth and power in the world in terms of pushing back against dictators and bad actors. Just based on your observation, let's be clear, what has this done and what does it have the potential to do in terms of sanctions circumvention? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating question. I think a lot of people, particularly after Russia's aggression against Ukraine, were very interested to see if crypto would create an alternative means for sanctioned Russian actors to try to evade the sanctions regime, right? So after Russia invaded Ukraine, obviously a heavy, heavy set of sanctions were imposed. And I think a lot of folks were interested to know, you know, would Russians who are actually quite active in crypto, would they be using crypto to essentially, you know, try to purchase weapons or drones or whatever? Now, what the data reveals is that that actually isn't what happened. The reality is, while crypto markets have been expanding over time, and they've gone up and down, but you know the general trend has been upward, there isn't enough liquidity in the crypto market 
for a large national you know, sovereign government like the Russians to be able to transact exclusively in crypto, right? Now, that could change. And that's something I think you know, folks who are interested in national security issues and international relations need to be keeping track of, right? 15 years from now or 20 years from now, it could be a very different circumstance, especially as countries like Russia and Iran and China are trying to create alternatives to the US dollar, some of which are crypto-based. And we, we can talk about that as we go forward. Elisa, there have been some efforts by these governments to create alternatives to settlement in U.S. dollars, including through certain digital assets. But again, none of that has really taken off yet, which is why, at least in the Russia case, we have not seen massive amounts of sanctions evasion activity through crypto. There have been attempts after the U.S. government has brought certain actions, whether through the Treasury or through the Justice Department, that have involved crypto when it comes to sanctions evasion. But it hasn't been this massive sort of alternate route that Putin and his cronies have been able to use to try to try to bust through sanctions. Now, that said, let's go back to North Korea. You know, North Korea is comprehensively sanctioned by everybody, <laughs> you know, whether it's the US, the UN, you know, everybody else. And there is no doubt that they've been able to raise hundreds of millions of dollars through, you know, essentially what are cybersecurity attacks, right? Through hacks on either exchanges or on cross-chain bridges. And it has been a means for that kind of rogue government to raise money in contravention of international sanctions, which is why I think, again, national security officials are particularly focused on that threat at the moment. You know, when we spoke to Andy Greenberg, whom I know is a friend of yours as well, he's a writer at Wired who has really developed an expertise in the area of cryptocurrency. Now, one thing that I thought was interesting was sort of the use case, the national security use case for cryptocurrency. I'm going to just toss this out there and hear your reaction to it. You know, a shutter runs through a lot of people in the national security space when they hear about these enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies, you know, these mixers and tumblers. And I think Andy has conducted interviews of people who have suggested that, you know, if, if there is a source inside Moscow that would be valuable to the United States government, there's a pretty good use for some of these enhanced anonymity cryptocurrencies. I wonder your reaction to that. I mean, journalist sources and the like. Yeah, let me let me speak generally, Holly. I, I think, look, I think as with any technology, there are offensive uses, there are defensive uses, there are, you know, what we would consider positive uses, pro uses and negative uses. What you've described, just at least hypothetically, is something that to me would make a lot of sense. If you're a dissident in one of these countries and you're trying to create a democracy movement, it would make sense that crypto would be one way you try to bring funds into the country in a way that's supportive of your pro-democracy efforts. And I don't think this is purely hypothetical. I think uh, Mr. Navalny in Russia, who is a you know very well-known pro-democracy advocate against the Putin regime, I believe he's been public about trying to raise money through crypto. In the Ukraine war, you know, right after the invasion, hundreds of millions of dollars, at least dozens of millions of dollars, I don't want to I don't want to get the numbers wrong, were sent to the Ukrainian government in an effort to raise funds, right? The Ukrainian government raised money through crypto, through crypto donations. Again, as with any technology, I think we just need to be open-minded about the risks and the upsides as well. You've mentioned one potential use case, which I think is very interesting. On the other side of the coin, you know, the Mueller indictments made clear that Russian intelligence officers were using crypto to try to rent server space here in the United States as part of their election interference activities in 2016. So again, that's an offensive use by a foreign intelligence service. If the US intelligence services weren't thinking about similar kinds of uses, I, I would frankly be a little disappointed. <laughs> so 
these are the kinds of issues that I think, you know, policymakers and, and thoughtful people need to be thinking through because they, they are nuanced and they're complex. Okay. Now I want to get into work of companies like TRM here for just a minute, but what I want to do is I want to propose another sort of meta thought to you here, which is we now see institutional investors. We now see large financial institutions moving to invest in cryptocurrency, which we've said experiences these, you know, huge swings, high vicissitudes. One of the concerns that I personally have, looking back on the subprime crisis of 2009, where the subprime loan sort of metastasized into otherwise well-managed, well-considered funds that were held, what happened was there was a toxic cake mix. And we had this you know, near collapse of the banking system, which was somehow righted, but which I think diminished the reputation of the United States globally in terms of sort of that bright shining light on the hill and the great leader and having a great economy. When I look out right now at these investments in some of these digital assets, I wonder if there isn't a rush to the next gold rush, right? This is that bright, shiny thing that's being wagged over there. I, I you know, fear of losing out. Or what do they call that again? There's an acronym. FOMO. 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 <laughs> fear of missing <laughs> out. And everybody's running towards this thing, much like they did to the gold rush, but only one guy made money, and that was Levi Strauss. When you look at this, talk about what your company does and sort of why this is something that these institutions need to consider. Yeah, it's it's a great question. I'll tell you a little bit about TRM. Our founders created TRM in 2018 based on, I would say, two basic beliefs. The first is that crypto use will grow around the world. And, and we're seeing that, Elisa. You know, even, I mean, you mentioned literally just in the last couple of days, the SEC approved for the first time a spot Bitcoin ETF. And that's, you know, a major kind of milestone. And speaks a little bit to how just ordinary retail American, you know, investors want to have exposure to Bitcoin. I'm not a financial advisor, obviously, and this is not my area of expertise, but these are trends that are simply undeniable. And you look at the retail use, you know, the everyday, ordinary kind of person use of crypto, you look at the volumes on some of these crypto exchanges, whether it's Binance internationally or Coinbase here in the base here in the United States. I mean, these are billions, if not trillions of dollars that are passing through these servers. So there is interest in this issue. The second sort of trend that I think our founders were focused on is that this growth will come with new risks, right? And so TRM was founded with the idea that crypto adoption will expand over time because of the internet of money, but that with that new world are going to be a new set of risks. That's what we really focused on as a company is, you know, thinking about what kind of changes do you need to make to an anti-money laundering regulatory regime when money is moving across borders at the speed of the internet? Or what kind of changes in cybersecurity do you need to make when a hack is not just about losing your username or your password, but now it's about losing your life savings, right? Because if that money is siphoned out, it's gone. Those are the kinds of things that we do at TRM. We analyze blockchain data, the flow of crypto around the world to detect when it's being used for illegal activity like trafficking or terrorist financing or fraud. And we build tools that both the private sector can use as well as the public sector, right? So if you're a private sector actor, a financial institution, if you're a bank, you want to ensure that you're not receiving stolen money or tainted money or sanctioned funds. So you need to do that to meet your global regulatory anti-money laundering or countering terrorist financing regulatory requirements. On the other side of the coin, if you're a law enforcement agency or a government agency or a national security agency, 
Using our tool, you can trace where crypto comes from and where it's going. And you can link it to real-world entities, you know, using your own independent investigative of subpoenas or other types of legal process. And that way, you can identify funds that you can seize to make victims whole or to identify bad actors and try to arrest them or at least sanction them or, you know, do something appropriately. So that's kind of how TRM has developed as a company. It's recognizing, on the one hand, that this world is here to stay, that digital assets are here to stay, but making sure that as a society, as a global society, we're identifying the associated risks and taking measures to at least empirically try to identify them so that policymakers and, and others can appropriately deal with those risks. I want to make sure that, you know, at least from our point of view, it's clear that we see potential, you know, huge potential for this technology. But we also need to make sure that the risks are appropriately mitigated and addressed. Well, this has been a good conversation, but sort of given how deeply you have thought about this stuff, I hope it's just a first conversation because I think we would have a lot more to talk about in any future podcast. And I appreciate the opportunity to discuss sort of the bigger issues because I do not know if I really believe our policymakers are doing that. And I hope that they will, because I do think these things are graspable, understandable, if people are willing to learn. And hopefully we can talk a little bit in the future at some point about what some of those fixes would look like. But I'm really glad you came in today. And I really do love talking about this world of cryptocurrency. And it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation, Lisa. Always happy to come back anytime. Terrific. Well, let me tell you, folks, our guest tonight has been Sujit Raman, former assistant deputy attorney general for DOJ. He's also now the chief legal officer of TRN Labs. Sujit really has done an amazing amount of work in cryptocurrency. I can't possibly hyperlink everything, but I will hyperlink his very impressive bio, which you can take a look at, as well as a link to the cryptocurrency enforcement framework, which he spearheaded while he was at the Department of Justice. We recognize that that sort of deals with things that happen after the fact, and now his work is more forward-looking. But it is something that I think people in the national security space need to begin to understand. I've given talks on cryptocurrency, and I always find it interesting, Sujit, at the end, there's always one guy who raises his hand and says, is there a coin? <laughs> there's no coin, sir. All right. Well, I'm glad to see you, and I hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to NSLT. Please sure to share this episode with a friend or a colleague and discuss the issues that we've presented with one another thoughtfully, trying to listen to one another and not dig in on your own point of view, if you can avoid that. If you had feedback for us, you can always reach us. We still call it Twitter, but we're on social media platforms. You can find us at ABA NatSec. You can always email us if you have something more substantive you'd like to share with us. You can find us at national security at AmericanBar.org. Our writer producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity, our editor, and my co-producer is the ever-lovely Francis Berkham. And our program manager is the remote now, Rebecca Salito. We miss her. My co-producer is Holly McMahon, but really the co-producers are always the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. We'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.